0: These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to Episode 138 of the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Today, I have a conversation with combat veteran, author, and Gold Star sibling Don Lee Gunke about his effort to impact the way that policymakers think and talk about the veteran suicide epidemic. Before we get started, I have to ask that you bear with me when it comes to the audio of this episode. It wasn't the greatest, and that's totally on me, but the conversation was a good one, so I didn't want to keep you from hearing what Don has to say because of my technical glitches.
1: And That's, again, where this becomes even more complicated, um, because it requires a a more extended focus than we're using at the moment with regards to what are we treating? How are we treating it? How do we meet everybody's needs? Um, whether it's post-traumatic stress or not. Um, most of the, if you were to look at most of the, the reporting on this, outside of the fact that it predominantly focuses on, on this post-911 generation. Most of the like media reporting, news media, print media specifically, tends to focus on like training and uh, outreach and exposure. So you'll see things like uh, I just saw one the other day. Somebody's going on a on a canoe trip during in this place near where he lives to kind of give exposure to the number of 20 or 22 veterans a day. Most of those are just trying to get that number out, but not with that, not any kind of context. So without kind of putting any kind of context, even saying that this is even more complex than what people presume, people are kind of left to their own devices, and that's people in the community, that is different veteran service organizations, that's politicians. So all of this tends to kind of feed in on itself if if we don't add these more complex elements that kind of need to be there for us to make good policy and allow for clinicians to make the kind of decisions they need for individualized patients.
0: Welcome to the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 Cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timings not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. You know, if you're a longtime listener, uh, we like to do a a little bit of mixing it up with our guests. Um, As you know, we do have some mental health professionals that come on the show. Those are veterans and those that weren't. Um, We have some veterans who um, have sort of gone through their experiences regarding mental health and want to be able to talk about those things. Um, And and my guest today, Don, is definitely a veteran, uh, but he is also someone that, uh, while not a mental health professional, has done some extensive research uh, and speaking and talking and studying uh, about veteran suicide. Um, So an example of the fact that you don't need to be a mental health professional to be involved in this conversation, and as a matter of fact, if if only the mental health professionals are involved in this conversation, then not everybody who should be is. So uh, before we get into that, uh, Don, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dwayne. Certainly, I I appreciate you taking the time. Um, Definitely want to get into everything that you're doing, um, the books, the TEDx talks, the research, the policy advisement. Uh, but before we get into that, I'd like to give you an opportunity to let the audience know how you got here and, um, and and a little bit more of your background.
1: So I am from West Central Wisconsin. I joined the military in early summer of 2001, so before post-9-11 uh, attacks. My completion day from basic training is actually the 13th. So you kind of know where that leads for the rest of your career when something like that happens early on. And um I served about seven years two deployments to Iraq. I come from a family of veterans. Um, I have three brothers and all of us served. Each of us did at least one deployment to the Middle East. So, and my youngest brother, who was the other Army professional, died, um, which is part of the subject of one of the books I wrote. Um, and for probably like the last 10 years, outside of uh Getting my bachelor's degree and stuff like that, have been focused on aspects of mental health, specifically veteran suicide, because I see where the differences of what's being presented and how it affects policy and, and aspects of that on the clinician's end down the line from policy and how it's kind of not worked, um, because our understanding of the issue is so flawed.
2: So, and, and and that's interesting. I, I'd like to hear more. I think about um, why veteran suicide um, really came to be uh, the issue that that you've been focusing on for so long. Uh,
1: part of it was because during my first year outside of service, I actually was um, impacted by that personally. I ended up having a very significant suicidal episode um, to the point where I. Made an unsuccessful attempt. How serious it, it was of attempt, I'm not entirely sure. That depends on perspective. But since that, to try to help myself, but also help others in this group, it kind of became a focal point for me to go, okay, what's? Let me take a look at what's really going on. So not only can I help myself, but I can help others along in the process
2: of this. So there's a, there's a lot of different reactions that that many have after a suicide attempt. Um, um, regardless of how, how intense it is, um, not everybody then dives into sort of studying it and, and really, you know, um, uh, wrapping around it as much as you have. Um, you know, that's, that's really a, a drive for you, like you said, to, to learn more about it, uh, but also to help others through it. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, good example from a, a non veterans perspective, is uh, uh individual named Tom, uh, Dr. Thomas Joyner. He's the one of the progenitors of the interpersonal theory of suicide. His starting point was also from, I believe, the suicide of his father. So it shows just kind of how events like that, whether they're from the person themselves or from others nearby, tend to affect how they try to look at things. So it extends beyond this community, so to speak.
2: Right, and, and you know, indefinitely, and, and like you said, it isn't something that's that's you know, necessarily so solo that it's unique. Um, so, so where has this taken you? I, I mentioned before that uh, uh, you do have a TEDx talk. That was back in 2015, and that was in response to the first 2013 veteran suicide report, which has um, subsequently been been re-released. Um, so, so when you started getting into the the, the research on the suicide from a uh, non-clinical perspective, sort of where did that take you?
1: Well, it, it showed me how misunderstood this problem has been uh, at and, and the breadth of it. Um, that 2012 revised 2013 report that came out um, showed that this problem's been around for a lot longer than anybody's really looked at, even with the, the flaws of that initial report. It goes to back to at least 1999, and the revised number that they have on that one is Twenty a day, which is commensurate to what it is today, two decades later, almost. So you're talking about a long-term problem that, in terms of the the mindset of everybody, it's an epidemic. It's really an only epidemic because we're only now starting to pay attention to it. Um, Otherwise, it's been around for a lot longer, and we've kind of not, since since more um, reports have come out, we've kind of not gone back and extended the length of how far we're looking at this. I think people are probably going to be uncomfortable in that fact, because that means there's something missing that we've been pay, not been paying attention to for so long. And that's why we've probably primarily looked at it from the more recent reports, 2005 on up, because we don't want to have to address why it's not been paid attention to prior to. Um, so that's been a little bit disconcerting. But the other thing that I've been working and trying to understand is, the complexity of the picture. If you were to look at the primary image most people probably would have for it today, which has been reinforced, unfortunately, by a lot of research I've been doing on just how it's been presented, the image you would probably take away is it is primarily this generation combat-induced PTSD that ultimately leads to the axe, and the research is not putting that out anywhere near that. So that flawed image is affecting a lot of the policy, which affects ultimately down the line what clinicians end up doing to help their patients. So if our image of this has been wrong for so long and remains that our ability to actually make reasonable policy on the end that actually allows clinicians the latitude and necessities they need to achieve this becomes severely hampered. And so that's why I've been focusing on trying to get that, that understanding changed.
2: Yeah, you're you're absolutely correct. There are a number of myths and misconceptions about um, what suicide looks like. Um, as we'd mentioned before, um, before we got on the show, I'm currently working on some um, information looking at uh, veteran suicides in Colorado specifically, um, and overwhelmingly, the the statistics in Colorado from um, 2014 to 2017, the window that we're looking at, um, is um, Caucasian males 55 and older, which is, like you said, it's, it's this, that's the number of suicides, um, are significant. Uh, and there's not a Vietnam veteran younger than 65 right now. So obviously we're looking at the, the Vietnam age and, and that aging population, the, um, the Cold War era veterans and, um, and even, you know, perhaps even approaching to the, uh, the Gulf War veterans at this point. Um, and, and so there, that is one of the myths. That it, it is an OIF, OEF. Um, they are, the suicides do have a higher rate at the, the you know, 18 to 24 year old age level. Um, but the greatest number overall is that older veteran population.
1: Yeah, and that's something I've come to find is rates tell you a piece of the puzzle. They don't tell the whole puzzle. And people are so fixated on that. In some respects, to the detriment of trying to actually address this problem, um, as a, as an example, I've done uncomfortably the research on this. If you were to look at kind of the proportionality of this, the, the focus tends to be on that 18 to 34 year old demographic. They make up slightly less than 15% of the losses, and that's pretty much right where the, the post 9-11 conflict generation aligns as well. But they're getting so much of the attention and the research and, and that stuff so proportionally they're getting way over the amount of exposure in comparison to the losses. So everybody else kind of gets forgotten as a, constant, uh, as a consequence of that. When you're talking about 85% of the people that are most immediately affected today not getting any kind of attention so that we can address policy appropriately. It kind of explains a little bit why we're not making any tread on addressing the problem.
2: Yeah, now, you've mentioned a couple of times about the idea of, of policy, right, and, and policy and legislative um, action. Um, I'd like to hear more about that, what you're you're, you're describing, um, local, state, federal policies or, or legislation, laws or regulations. Um, what is it that you see from that perspective that impact this conversation around veteran suicide?
1: Uh, one of the, uh, the laws that's been introduced in the last couple of weeks um, in the federal sphere is called the Veterans Post Traumatic Growth Act. Post Traumatic Growth is a relatively new term, but it's predicated on the idea of post traumatic stress, which goes back to the idea of it's explicitly conflict related, which isn't necessarily always the case. And even less so than I think people understand But because that is the way the act is and the the way the approach on that is and the presumed cause, not not just a a contributing factor but, but explicit cause, when that is the way the focus is and the way the legislation is, it affects everything down the line, especially at the VA, where everything is dependent on whether or not they're meeting specific policy goals dictated to them by legislators. So when you have this mindset that's this way and it's it's pretty much explicitly geared towards trying to address presumed ailment, like I said, the the traditional picture of uh, post-9-11 combat-induced post-traumatic stress, when everything's geared towards that and the data doesn't show that that's necessarily the case, you you can kind of understand where we're reinforcing bad policies that hamper not just clinicians but the overall issue at hand and trying to alleviate it. Uh, and that's just one of many that are kind of in the last few months come out. But that's one of the more recent that ones, two weeks old. So it tells you kind of the mindset of the individuals that are trying to tackle what they think is going on with regards to this issue.
2: So the idea, and, and we did, we have talked about post-traumatic, uh, post-traumatic growth here on the show before. We had uh, Ken Falk from Boulder Crest Retreats back on um, episode 66. Um, and and from what I'm hearing, you say is that the idea is that just focusing on post-traumatic growth presupposes that someone would have gone through trauma. There is this idea of trauma focus, um, and that just post-traumatic growth is just the opposite, or, or you know, the other side of the coin of, of post-traumatic stress. Um, which you're absolutely right. You know, post-traumatic growth, um, while there has been a lot of uh, um, clinical and some research evidence that that shows even back to Nietzsche, right? Whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Um but your contention is just focusing on that um as opposed to other aspects um reinforces the idea that this is a solely post nine eleven issue.
1: Um that and or just strictly a war based sentiment because to to most people's minds they wouldn't think that post traumatic stress comes from anywhere else. So inaccurate as that is. But if you were to ask most people to give a point on an example, they'd probably point to, um, Rambo and First Blood or Platoon or any myriad of movies that are explicitly war related and not think of anything else. And the problem with that is it needs some needs, but it doesn't need the complexity of needs that an individual patient may need. So it's, it's kind of trying to do this one size fits all when it, we know that doesn't work.
2: Um, I do agree, and, and long time listeners will know that I am not specifically trauma focused, uh, nor am I sick, you know, uh, just, um, you know, a broken veteran focused that we, we need to focus on wellness, if not illness. Uh, but this idea of focusing on post traumatic growth, um, the majority of the veterans, if we're talking again about numbers, um, the majority of those veterans who take their own lives haven't been in combat in decades, if not almost half a century, um, for our Vietnam veterans, uh, or over half a century. And so, um, just the combat can't be the only thing. And so there are these other factors that, uh, you know, uh, loss of connection, loss of a sense of purpose and meaning. Um, you know, um, there were studies in the mid 90s on late onset PTSD. So Holocaust survivors who had had many decades of of stability, and then as they retired, and their friends started to pass away, um, and um, cognitive degeneration, that uh, post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms started to kick in, um, and and so there is this issue of um, how do we address the suicides at the oldest level, or at the, at the for those veterans that experience at the oldest level, uh, that's what I hear that you're you're talking about.
1: Um, they need a little bit more attention, a lot more attention than they've been getting, but it, it, it comes back a little bit again to presuming war-related trauma. I'm not sure if you read the, uh, report that came out in June of last year, but they actually broke down over a 10-year period, um, by conflict error, um, and not just conflict error, but there's a category in there that's called peacetime, where the, the proportionality of losses was and if you were looking at explicitly the combat areas, Vietnam is, is the most. There's going to be some crossover that has to be adjusted for. But if you're looking for straight proportional losses, the, the largest uh, area that had losses was peace time, which constituted 33%. Um, Again, you're going to have to adjust for crossover because people served over in many areas. But 33% of people that have that, you can make a really good argument that 20 to 25%, which is cutting that down by 25 to 40%, um, served exclusively in that. So if you're talking one to every four to one in every five veterans who took their lives, died, uh, had only served during peacetime, that severely undercuts the argument that it's explicitly post-traumatic stress more specifically combat-induced post-traumatic stress. There are other incidents that may have affected them at some point in their lives that may give them a post-traumatic stress ailment, but it can't be due to necessarily combat because you had that many people that were not serving the time of war, whether declared or otherwise. So that is just one of the the descriptions of the complexity of this issue and why we need to be cautious about making this one-size-fits-all assumption
2: approach. You no, know, you, you were you know, obviously with with the research and the the report that you found. I mean, that, that is absolutely correct, um, and and that's one of the things where I believe that service members like you and, and myself, of course, coming from the clinical side, um, but need to really uh, focus on these different things because a lot of people think you know military service is military service and peacetime is easy and combat is not. Um, but uh, one of the articles that I wrote, in, and I looked at uh, one of the uh, 2015 Congressional Research Service report, the total number of active duty military deaths. This is this is service in service deaths in 1980 was 2,392, and it was only 1,485 in 2010. So there were two wars going on in 2010. There were no wars going on in 1980, and yet the, um, the 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 mortality rate of military service is almost double in 1980. The military is an inherently dangerous occupation, whether you're at war or not. Now, back in the 80s, of course, they didn't have um, you know safety officers and PT belts and all these other things that you know all of these issues, right? Which which is probably one of the reasons that that the um the mortality rate in the military we're not talking suicide rate, but we're talking mortality rate in the military went down, but that's two hundred two thousand three hundred and ninety two individuals in nineteen eighty that were likely witnessed someone dying um or roughly around that, which then twenty thirty years later could be impacting them
1: oh yeah. And and that's the struggle, is trying to find out what meets the individual, treatment for the individual. And a lot of the policies that have been enacted since um, trying to meet those congressionally mandated directives are kind of hampered flexibility in some respects, uh, certainly within those in the VA, but even to some degree outside, depending on things like choice or the Mission Act or these kind of things, depending on how those play out, um, affects how we can address specific needs to specific individuals. There's there's an attempt to try to do this synthesis of a one-size-fits-all approach again, which I've explained, and and it doesn't work. Um, I had a conversation a few years back when I saw kind of how the the overall picture of this thing was, even though these are only just estimates. And I, I told them that when these numbers don't come down or don't come down sufficiently enough, the automatic response can be we're not spending enough time, enough resources, whatever. Instead of looking at this and going, okay, how are we spending these? How Are are they allocated to the right people? Are they allocated to the right treatments? And nobody's asking those questions. It's pretty much kind of reinforced by everything of we're not spending enough time, enough resources on and on instead of how are we spending them. There's going to be a little bit of we're not having quite enough, but the, the bigger problem is how they're being utilized.
2: Right. I mean, and, and of course, uh, that's an issue. And, and we inside the clinical field, right? And, and I don't mean to keep making this distinction, uh, but it is, and in, I in in very much appreciate your point of view, um, is that you're not coming at this from a clinical place or even a, a, a sponsor. You know, it's not like you're with RAND or, or some other organization, um, but we in the clinical space recognize this, um, uh, and, and even in the legislative space. Uh, as we record this coming up this next Monday, um, uh, I'm going to be presenting on veteran suicide, um, at our state capitol to a bunch of lawmakers. They gave me an hour and there's no way that I can give, you know, that, that, I mean, it's just the tip of the tip of the iceberg. The, that's just the overview in an hour. Um, and, and there's interest, but there's, but like as you said before, it's such a complex problem that, um, uh, that just one, individual one small group of individuals isn't gonna be able to wrap their hands around it. Um
1: not 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 possibly we would prefer no. Um there's always a possibility to that, but that also requires those individuals who are trying to in this case make policy to affect um yourself and others that are clinicians to want to take the time to do that. Um and I think to a certain extent because of the as I said before, this this dates back almost two decades at least. Um I think they're a little hesitant because they realize if they start getting into the complexity, uncomfortable questions will be asked. So in some respects, they, they'd probably prefer not to understand it to a certain extent. They won't ever focalize it, probably not even consciously aware of it. But I, I would imagine there's, there's a little bit of trepidation in that respect. Um, how is it we're just getting to this now? Um, the first kind of inklings of it was 2005, um, but it extended six, seven years prior to that. So, and, and at the same level, why, why are we just coming to this point now? They're not going to want to have, to an extent they're going to want to know what happened, but they're not going to want to have to explain how they themselves were missing the ball uh, on this.
2: You know, there, there has been um, a, a number of different attempts to address veteran suicide in many different levels. Um, and, and not a lot of them, you know, again, as you said, the number hasn't changed, and, and one of my frustrations, and a frustration that many people um, that I talk to hold, is that we simply don't have current numbers. Um, just now, even in the state of Colorado, when we have a fairly um, rapid um, uh, data rate and a very robust program um, to, to collect and present that data, um, we're only now getting 2017 data up, right? And so it's like trying to fight a battle with intelligence that. Two years old. Whatever efforts that we make right now, we're not going to find out for another two years um, if those efforts were effective um, and, and things like that. And so it's such a, as you said, it is an epidemic. But we're, but whatever we're trying now, we really have to take a very long view of it um, because we won't know whether or not it's working until either a we get the data sooner or um, we we try to measure it in other ways.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, the best way probably at the present time would be trying to look at the long-term trends, but because the long-term trends are flat, as, as we've said, um, what we can say of the stuff that we passed so far is that it isn't particularly effective at present, and that's not necessarily because nobody cared. I think it's because they're trying to do this one-size-fits-all approach. Um, and their their misunderstanding of the, the complexity of the issue. So at the moment, the best way you're going to be able to know whether or not something is working is going to be long term trends. And I think that's something that nobody wants to say right now is that do not assume this to be a quick answer.
2: You know that idea of looking at long term trends, um, and that just popped into my mind. Not just looking at long term trends three years from now, but looking at long term Trends that that started three years ago. So, mm-hmm. what you know, what policy? What did we understand about veteran suicide in 2015? What strategies and solutions did we put in place there that didn't work in 2015 because the rate didn't go down, right? So, right. so what solutions were they, we, they, but they were trying to implement? If we're talking like it's in another country, another group of people, but what what sort of strategies were trying to be used in 2015? And if we're still using those strategies now, they didn't work in 2015, and they're not going to work now.
1: Well, one of the ones, I can't remember exactly when it was passed, but it was passed before that, was the Clay Hunt Save Act. And we have data to enough to show that whatever specific programs um, were enacted as a consequence of that to, um, are not panning out as we had thought, not panning out as we had uh, Clay Hunt Save Act was... 2015, so we're only about a year or so into full application from the data that's available now. But what we're seeing, because the, the most recent data goes along, um 2015 and 2016, full application started at the beginning of 2015, pans through, through the end of 2016, and the rate for 18 to 34-year-olds, instead of decreasing, increased. So something was missed of application or understanding or something of those na- uh, nature. And nobody's asking those particular questions. I know the, the first question um, that popped into my mind when they, they did the testimony at the end of last year in September, sorry, uh, last year when they had the Kavanaugh hearing that people kind of missed this report. They, they kind of asked why what the what is 2016 uh, calendar year numbers went up for 18 to 34-year-olds and how we can address it. And the first thought process that came to my mind was, well, where was the shift? And I know people are going to look at that going, what does it matter? It it went up. Well, if the presumption here is that it's combat-induced post-traumatic stress, the majority of people that would have been affected in that way would be closer to the 34-year end of that group rather than the 18. Because in the last five or six years, we've gotten back down to uh, more regular dwell time and home and less combat and way, way, way fewer amounts of troops deployed. So depending on where that shift was would determine where you put more weight on an issue. And Because Kelly Hunt was particularly geared towards post-traumatic stress. Are we really looking at the issues that are, are impacting people's lives? Right now, if we were to go off of that, since the majority of, of post-911 generation falls into that 18 to 34-year-old category, the answer might be no, but we don't know because nobody's asking questions like I just asked of where was that shift.
2: No, uh, yes, uh, that is a good point. And, and you're right, that bulk, um, well, and, and maybe even that bulk of, of post-9-11 generation is maybe even, you know, graying older than, than 34 because you have, you technically could be considered, um, you know, one of the, the straddle generations, and, and, but, mm-hmm. but I definitely was. So i spent the first 10 years of my career um, from from 92 to 2001 um, in quote unquote the peacetime army, although there was definitely, you know, air wars in, in no fly zones in Iraq, but then Bosnia right. and Kosovo and stuff. Um, uh, but de- technically the peacetime army, um, uh, not spent the last half, the last half of my career in, in combat. Um, it, but really if you look at it, this, this is the first cross generational war that our most senior leaders in the military in 2001 were of the Vietnam generation, right? They, they, they were in for 30, 35 years. So we're talking about the highest-ranking generals and the sergeants, majors, and, and command mm-hmm. master chiefs. So you have that generation. Then you have, of course, my generation of, of that, that straddle. And then you have the the, um, the post-9-11, the true post-9-11 generation that joined um, after right. 9-11. So we're really looking at um, three generations. Um, my, my son, for example, um, was born a month before 9-11. Um, it, this August, he could enlist uh, in the military, and, uh, and, and go fight the same war that I fought. And that's never happened in American history, with the exception of, you know, perhaps the um, the, the wars in the West for Native Americans. But really, like an officially declared war, that's never happened, which just adds to the complexity of this issue.
1: Right. And, and that's, again, where this becomes even more complicated, um, because it requires a... a more extended focus than we're using at the moment with regards to what are we treating, how are we treating it, how do we meet everybody's needs, um, whether it's post-traumatic stress or not. Um, most of the, if you were to look at most of the the reporting on this, outside of the fact that it predominantly focuses on, on this post 9-11 generation. Most of the like media reporting, news media, print media specifically, tends to focus on like training and uh, outreach and exposure. So you'll see things like uh, I just saw one the other day. Somebody's going on a on a canoe trip during in this place near where he lives to kind of give exposure to the number of 20 or 22 veterans a day. Most of those are just trying to get that number out, but not with that, not with any kind of context. So without kind of putting any kind of context, even saying that this is even more complex than what people presume. People are kind of left to their own devices, and that's people in the community, that is different veteran service organizations, that's politicians. So all of this tends to kind of feed in on itself if, if we don't add these more complex elements that kind of need to be there for us to make good policy and allow for clinicians to make the kind of decisions they need for individualized patients.
2: You're you're absolutely right. You know, awareness without context is not necessarily effective. Um, and, and even for me, um, arguably, the focus on suicide, uh, suicide is a lagging indicator of a myriad of underlying problems, right? So um, when we say we're trying to um, solve the problem of veteran suicide or address veteran suicide, um, we're trying to cure a symptom. Um, if cure can be the right word, rather than address what the actual underlying causes are. Um, but that awareness piece is is really what what you and I first connected about is is with all of the research that you've done. and you've uh, published, uh, like you said, uh, several books. Uh, but you're currently working on another book um, to to bring more of a focused attention on these areas that you believe are lacking in either the media, For legislators or policymakers.
1: Yeah, the the present book I've been uh, the draft is is finished, um, and I'm just trying to see if anybody's willing to to pick it up at the present moment. uh, And doing as I go along, where I'm seeing changes I need to make. But it's it's called tunnel vision, and the reason it's called that is because the way we tend to focus on this issue is through a very specific lens, instead of the 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 broad aspects that it needs to be to address it. because of the, the tendency to focus on the post-9-11 and presumed combat-induced post-traumatic stress, that only helps that, that small portion of, of the group, assuming that is is the cause for an individual. I would argue it probably should be labeled as a contributing factor, as I said. 33% of the people that took their lives over a decade period that they watched were serving in peacetime and probably 20-25% of the veterans community served in that explicitly. That that severely undercuts your understanding of what is the cause. And I think that's, that's one of the problems is we're trying to simplify it to a cause. We're not saying here are all the potential risk factors, let's see where we give specific weight to specific things for specific individuals or specific time periods. And because of that, we're we're not making any kind of traction on this issue because we're we're trying to focus in and synthesize on here's our presumed idea of the cause. If we can treat this cause, we'll we'll deal with the subsequent element, which is the the suicidal acts. And I do that a little bit by basically saying here's it's the, the book right now is broken into three parts. Part one is what's the current presentation. By the different actors that have helped either make it or reinforcement. So media, VSOs, and politicians, they've either brought this to people's attention or they're bringing what they understand to people's attention and then reinforcing it by different means. The second part is basically here's just how complex this really is, and it doesn't get into every possible factor that would take too long. But it gives you some of the big ones, some that are explicitly veteran-related, but some that aren't. And then the third piece is trying to go give us a little bit of a way forward. Some things that we need to recognize before, besides the fact that our picture is flawed, that are going to be hindrance to us and also possible options to help in the future. I don't, I say options because I can't guarantee that they'll work, but they may help other things, specifically treatment purposes that may resolve this problem. Um, The two big ones on that end tend to be education and issues related to stigma. And education is pretty much, your picture is wrong, let's refocus. Stigma is another matter entirely, because that also is a bit complex.
2: So, um, and and you're not doing this as part of any, um, you know, like I said before, not academic research, um, not as part of um, any clinical, this, I mean, this is entirely the book and all this research you're doing, um, is, is simply out of your own volition and dedication to trying to understand this.
1: Oh, yeah. Because I, my thought process is if I can get some information out to open people's eyes, maybe that will at least move us away from the presumed context and picture we're, we're operating off of to ways that will actually have the conversations that are needed. Um, and allow us to look at all the different options on the table for us to address this problem and bring it down um, that's that's how I see it
2: so how has um how has this been received? your messaging um you know uh, you've shared the book with me, I assume you've shared the book with others. um how has this been received um in general to the people that you've shared it with
1: um, it it all depends some of them are shocked. Quite a few of them are shocked when they start reading uh, Section 2. Um, It's been a little bit of a positive when I'm recommending certain things, but it's also still one of those complex things where people are like, really? I didn't know that, or I didn't know this, or I didn't know that. Um, Even intelligent individuals, my father and I have had conversations as this um, as I've been working on this thing, and things like that, that 33 percent of individuals in that decade period were serving in peacetime and you can still I can break that down to probably 20 25 percent exclusively um that shocked him because he as smart as he is and as, as, as much of an intelligent individual as he is he's just like everybody else in the presumption that here's here's the picture here's the cause and we're finding that that's not the case so things like that have tended to to Open people's eyes, but also frustrate them when they see that because it's like, why haven't I been told some of this stuff? So it's kind of a mix. It's, it's a mix, positive and negative, just in terms of its effects on individuals.
2: So, so where do you hope to go from here? Um, what is? I mean, obviously, you said that you're you're looking for for people that are you know interested in in, in helping you publish the book or or get it out there to a wider audience. But but uh, where do you see this going for you personally?
1: Um, hopefully to open up people's minds enough so we can, my goal would be to help other people see the same thing I'm seeing enough to know that this is a complex issue where we can actually start having conversations and making moves to address this issue. If we can, if I can start seeing that, I, I will feel that I will have accomplished something of, of value. Um, Cause I've, I've seen a couple, too many people recently, um, Including people like I used to serve with falling prey to this this ailment, and it would be better to try and do something to actually positively affect that. Um, that's that's kind of my outlook on it right now. If I can get 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 us moving in a good direction, I will be happy with that. That would probably be
3: the best way of looking at it.
2: No, I, I agree. You know, just the more conversations like this, the one you and I are having, that more people are having, um, and like you said, it, it perhaps it does seem to be that that's. That's going on, but is it going on at the rate, and with the information that that it really should be, uh, debatably, you know, not.
1: Well, the the, the interesting part on this one is a lot of this information for for some of the policymakers is there, but for whatever reason, they're just, they're not seeing it, they're not acting on it, and that's that's one of the puzzlements to me. So, the the people that could possibly affect things are, are not seeing this. For for whatever reason that that bugs me, and the the proposed legislation that they've got right now reinforces that fact that they're not seeing this.
2: So and, and as we wrap up here, you know, if someone were to um, you know listen to this and they do want to hear more and hear about, more about the work that you're doing, uh, how can they get a hold of you?
1: Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, last brother home. Um, and I have a, an author's page on Facebook, um, that kind of covers stuff as I'm, I'm doing more book writing and things of that sort. So that is a, a good way to kind of start a conversation if they're interested, um, or looking to kind of get an understanding of why I'm going this particular direction on this issue.
2: Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. I'll make sure that all of those are in the show notes and, uh, and, and listeners can definitely access that. Um, any last thoughts before we take off here?
1: Uh, I think we got uh, enough on this regard. It's It's been a pleasure having this discussion. I wish more people would, quite frankly, but I'm <laughs> glad we were able to get uh, something rolling on this.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Trying to um, uh, ha- handle the awkward conversations or the uncomfortable questions like you had mentioned earlier. Um, the more uncomfortable questions and awkward conversations we have, Um, the more people are going to pay attention to it. So thanks for joining me to have that conversation.
1: My pleasure.
0: You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. As I mentioned when Don and I started talking, here's an example of a veteran who's looking at the suicide epidemic not from an academic researcher perspective or a clinical perspective, but from a personal experience and independent research perspective. We don't have to be doctors or therapists to talk about this. We don't have to have the solution by ourselves, mental health professionals, because if we did, the problem would be solved by now. If you're interested in learning more about Don and what he's doing, look him up on social media. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST 138. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I am a therapist, I'm not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice so you don't miss it. Till then, remember veterans, you're not alone. Ever.
3: I try so hard.